Amen. Good morning, everybody. Um, I, I pray that we'd have another wave of God's Spirit at work amongst us as we look at His Word now. Um, could we have the PowerPoint, please? That'd be brilliant. Um, we are in, uh, we're, we're actually, we're right at the end of a series. It's the last time you'll see this picture. We have been going through a series this summer that's all about community, about the church and the community that we form, uh, called One Body, Many Parts. And I have the privilege of finishing it off this morning. And uh, in many ways, what we're looking at this morning is, is the pinnacle of this series, because we're talking this morning, or looking at how we all play our parts, not only in participating in community, but in forming and growing community, that is family. And uh, where's my clicker gone? Here we go. My first, this is the, really the thing of the morning, this, this morning, that it takes parents to form family. It takes parents to form family. Parents are needed in order to grow family. That, and uh, even as I say that, I know that all kinds of different thoughts and feelings will be provoked by the word parent. Some of you are parents and love it. Some of you are parents and somehow wish the clock could be turned back. <laughs> uh, some of you have experienced your own parents being great, and others have had a much more difficult experience. Uh, some of you have experienced fatherly and motherly care in the church community, and others have had people call themselves fathers and mothers, but do you harm? Others just feel a bit neglected. I mean, there's just all of that going on, and it's just worth acknowledging it at the, at the start. This man in the middle here was a good father, not just to his own children. This man is called George Muller. I don't know how many of you have heard of George Muller. Uh, he founded 117 schools, mostly for orphans, uh, without ever asking for a penny. Wow. That's amazing. And he didn't start uh, it all as a young man full of vigor. It got going as, I mean, he's living in Bristol. There were kids in need, so he opened a home. The neighbors complained. <laughs> That's a familiar story. And so they built bigger homes out in the countryside, and this movement started. Uh, the man was widowed at 65, uh, remarried, um, and started to travel beyond the UK at the age of 70. That's when he started. This is in the 19th century when travel wasn't so straightforward. He started to take this movement internationally when he was 70, and he kept doing it until he was 87. So there's a bit of encouragement to those of more mature years there. This man was a parent extraordinaire. He was not just his own family, but providing fatherly care to, to many people. So hold that in mind. And then please turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. 
there's something that Jesus says which is at odds with all that I've said in the last couple of minutes. And we need to have a look at it and make sense of it. Otherwise, you may one day come across it in the Bible and think that all I've said is nonsense, which would be a tremendous shame. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 8. I'm afraid I don't think I put the the verse up here. So let me just say, Matthew 23 and reading from verse 8. Jesus says... You are not to be, speaking to his disciples, you are not to be called rabbi, for you only have one master, you are all brothers. You are not to call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. So, This is Jesus saying, there's no need for hierarchy amongst my disciples. You're all brothers and sisters. There's no one who gets put above others except Christ alone, God himself. So that would rather undermine the way in which thousands of children honored George Muller as a father figure who did them good. So what sense do we make of that? Well, it's not that complicated after all. If you turn a few chapters on to the end of Matthew's gospel, you'll find the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Do you see the word teaching appearing there? Jesus says, Matthew chapter 23, don't be called teacher. says in chapter 28, go and teach. I want to suggest to you that there's a similar thing in here around fathering and discipling. Um, In order to make this a bit clearer, we just need to take a little bit of a step back and think about the bigger picture story of what happened in the New Testament. The kingdom of God began amongst Jewish people who were expecting a new kingdom of God brought in by the Christ who would have followers. And because they were good Jews, they knew that the shape of that following would be a rabbi with disciples. That's a very Jewish way of understanding things. The kingdom of God brought in by the Messiah, who would be a rabbi with disciples. Uh, That God himself would express his fatherhood to his children through that pattern. But there's quite a lot of that vocabulary that just would not have made sense beyond the borders of Israel. The people that received the gospel about Jesus in Asia Minor and Greece and in Italy and beyond weren't expecting a kingdom. If you had spoken to them about a kingdom, they would have thought of the Roman emperor and had a completely different set of ideas. And it's no great surprise, therefore, that as we go on through the later New Testament, 
there's less use of the phrase, the kingdom of God, than there was in Jesus' own words in the gospel. Because Jesus could use that vocabulary, it made sense to the Jews to whom he was speaking, but as the gospel of the kingdom was taken to other people who spoke a different language and had different understanding, the the same idea needed translating into language that made sense to them. In John's gospel, which was written for those people beyond Israel, people with Greek ways of thinking, he almost never mentions the kingdom of God, but instead talks about Christ coming with light and abundant life for all eternity. And you can see there's one or two places in the Gospels. Uh, Mark 10 is one of them where you can see those two things, the kingdom and eternal life, put next to each other, and they mean the same thing. So if this sounds all a little bit dry and academic, the point is there's another one of these translations that went on in the area of discipleship and fatherhood. the, uh, The Gospels are full of the vocabulary of the disciples, and it goes on a little bit into Acts, but we don't read about discipleship in the same way in the later part of the New Testament. Instead, in John's letters, he talks about fathers and sons. Paul talks about his son, Timothy, and as we'll read later, talks about how there are many guardians, but not many fathers. And we see the same thing going on here in Matthew 23. On the one hand, Jesus says, don't call anyone teacher, But in the Great Commission says, go out and teach. Don't worry about the title, but get on with the job. In the same way, he says, don't call anyone father, but go out and make disciples. And it's the same thing. It's the same task of taking hold of people in relationship and helping them to grow into all that God has for them. That's the heart of spiritual parenting. So we don't have to worry that Jesus says all sort of bans the vocabulary of spiritual fathers and mothers. It's, it's, he says, don't get all hoity-toity, don't you know, claim it as an office and look down on people because you've got some position in the church family but get on with the task of teaching people, baptizing people, making disciples. That's one little thing I just felt the need to look into and get our thinking straight before really getting going. There's one other thing, which is about the question of, is this just about fathers or fathers and mothers? How does all of that work? Well, God is revealed to us as Father God, but he also is like a mother, He acts like a mother. One of the places that says this, shows this to us in Isaiah 66, verse 12, for example. This is what the Lord says. I will extend peace to her, this being Israel. I will extend peace to her like a river and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees 
As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. God is quite secure enough in his fatherhood to describe himself as being like a mother to his people. And when Adam and Eve were created in God's image, they were created as a father and a mother together in God's image. This isn't the time and space for me to try and explain difference between fatherhood and motherhood. I'll leave that to another day. But want to say, I'm going to pick up, although the scriptures most often talk about fatherhood, I just want to pick up this morning what I, this phrase I'm using. It's parents, not just fathers, but parents who form spiritual family. We're talking about spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. Okay, that's my preamble. I could see some of you going, you're looking a little bit bored, frankly. So... Um, that's okay. I just felt I needed to put a couple of... No, it's true. It's all right. I just felt I needed to put a couple of foundations. It's, it's warm. I'm saying a few slightly academic things to satisfy some questions people might be asking. We'll now get on with the substance of the matter. Okay. And to make life better, my PowerPoint this morning, I've broken the habit of a lifetime and it's full of cute animals. Well, that's not quite... The first animal's not very cute. They get cuter as it goes on. The first one's not at all cute, actually. Uh, and they get cuter as they go on. Um, so I've got some animals and I've got some scriptures and we're going to look at, so what is it? What are, what are, uh, yeah, a minute ago you looked tired and bored and now I'm thinking, now I'm thinking that's me and maybe I should go and have a cup of tea instead. No, it's okay. Let's start again. A few different things about what godly parents are like. That's the point. So if we carry on, if we go back to Matthew 23 and carry on reading, uh, it says something about what Christ wants his disciples to be like. So having said, don't call anyone rabbi, don't call anyone father, don't call anyone teacher. He says this, verse 11, the greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Here's the first thing. I'll explain the octopus in just a moment. Uh, Spiritual parents give at their own expense. That's the first thing that parents do, is they give to their kids at their own expense. Uh, Elderly parents sometimes hang on to their savings and keep them in the bank when they could have spent them all on holidaying in Corfu because they want to pass something on to their kids. There are um, mothers at the point of falling pregnant, and um, I may be... If this doesn't come across right, then forgive me, but I've heard women say it too, so I think it's all right uh, for me to say. But mothers who... The mothers at the point of becoming pregnant and then carrying the child and looking after the child and feeding them and all the rest of it, give up their figure for the sake of their children. I've got a few nods. I was really worried about that. I wouldn't get involved, Jez. I counsel quietness at this point. Um, Just recently, um, our youngest daughter, Eleanor, had her last day. Uh, preschool. It was sad. And because of that pattern of her, she's, she's going to be going to school full-time from the autumn, but because Bev teaches on a Friday afternoon, for me, for the last 
eight years or so, Friday afternoons, it's been a consistent thing in my life, it's been my time with our youngest daughter, whichever of our daughters was the youngest, Friday afternoons has been daddy-daughter time. So the last Friday afternoon, about 10 days ago, I had my last ever such afternoon. I tried to do the best I could. I asked Eleanor, where would she like to go in all the world? To which the answer was Happy Meal. (laughs) (laughs) So there we are. Um, (laughs) um, But you know how it leaves me feeling is I'm thinking, so my opportunity to do something nice with my youngest daughter is now my regular opportunities taken away. What I'm thinking is, what can I do to be a blessing to my daughters? I don't like the fact that the easy opportunity is taken away. What, what is it that I can now do in an altered pattern of life? So the last day of the older girls' school was last Wednesday. So I said to Amber, our eldest, who's finished primary school and is going into senior school, I said to her on Tuesday, right then, cafe of your choice after school tomorrow. Where are we going? Um... She's a little bit older, so for her it was Café Rouge or... I can't remember the other place. But um, that was a little bit of a disaster because Lois, the middle one, overheard and felt very slighted. <laughs> you never take me to a café ever, ever. <laughs> anyway, so we had this whole... This is a complete tangent. We had this whole argument. <laughs> we had this whole argument. I'm just a bit cathartic for me, that's all. <laughs> we had this whole argument on Tuesday afternoon... Tuesday afternoon, we had this whole argument with, I'm, I'm telling Lois that I do love her really, and I'm telling Amber that, no, I'm not going to back down on my promise to take her out for a special time and whatever. That's our Tuesday early evening. Wednesday afternoon comes around, Amber goes, no, I can't be bothered, I don't want to go out. I'd rather stay at home. Parents suffer these things and still keep thinking... What can I do to bless my kids? You're not put off. You don't say, well, stuff, I've, I've given you one option. End, end of story. Of course not. You keep thinking how to bless your kids. The reason for the picture of the octopus is the particular thing that um, many species of octopus do, the, the mother in particular. Um, octopuses are remarkable for producing this huge number of eggs. They'll produce millions of them. And the female octopus will not just produce a few eggs and then swim off, but will go and hole up in a cave somewhere underground and give over the entirety of her body tissue to making eggs, giving all that she has, all that she is to the next generation, and then die. There's something of the heart of God in that, isn't there? Jesus, same character as God the Father, goes to a cross. What can I do for others? What can I do for others? Giving at our own expense. It's what parents do. Um, Here's another thing. Consistency. There we go. Um, This penguin, you know, they stand there in the you know, the Antarctic storms facing all, of the, all that nature has to throw at them, first of all incubating this little egg and then looking after this little chick, providing security and comfort and um, warmth in a tremendously inhospitable environment. 
The reference that I've got there is to the story of the prodigal son. I'm not going to read that. I'm going to read another version of the same sort of story, which you all have, some of you will have heard before. It's from Floyd McClung's book, The Father Heart of God. Some of you will have heard it before. I love this story, and if you've not heard it before, you'll understand why in a minute, and if you have heard it before, you'll understand why I think it's worth reading again. This is an, a modern telling of the story of the prodigal son, which could equally be termed the story of the faithful father. They say that the first time, this is the story that's told of a man called Sawat in um, Thailand. The first time Sawat ever went into the top floor of the hotel in Bangkok, he was shocked. He'd never dreamed of anything like this. Every room had a window facing into the hallway, and in every room sat a girl. Some were just 12 or 13 years old. They looked nervous even frightened. It was Sawat's first venture into the world of prostitution. It all began innocently enough, but soon he was caught up in it like a small piece of wood in a raging river. It was too powerful for him, the current too strong. Soon he was selling opium to customers and propositioning tourists in the hotels. He even went so low as to actually help buy and sell young girls. It was a nasty business, and he became one of the most important of the young businessmen. He became a central figure in one of the world's largest and most loathsome trades, Thailand's sex industry. Sawat disgraced his family and dishonored his father's name. He'd come to Bangkok to escape the dullness of village life, and he found excitement And while he prospered in this sordid life, he was popular. But then the bottom dropped out of his world. He hit a string of bad luck. He was robbed. And then he was arrested. Everything went wrong. The word spread in the underworld that he was a police spy. And he finally ended up living in a shanty by the city rubbish dump. Sitting in his little shack, he thought about his family especially his father. He remembered the parting words of his father, a simple Christian man from a small village. I'm waiting for you. Would his father still be waiting for him after all he'd done to dishonor the family name? Word had long ago filtered back to the village about Sawat's life of crime and sin. Finally, he devised a plan, wrote a letter. Dear father, he wrote, I want to come home, but I don't know if you'll receive me. I have sinned greatly. Father, please forgive me. On Saturday night, I'll be on the train which goes through our village. If you're still waiting for me, will you tie a single piece of cloth on the po tree in front of our house? During the train ride, he thought over his life of evil. He knew his father had every right to refuse to see him. As the train neared the village, he was filled with anxiety. Would he see a piece of white cloth on the po tree? Sitting opposite him was a kind stranger who noticed how nervous Sawat had become. Finally, Sawat could stand the pressure no longer. The story burst out to the stranger. He told the man everything. As they entered the village, Sawat said, Oh, sir, I cannot bear to look. 
Could you watch for me? What if my father won't receive me back home? He buried his face in his knees. Do you see it? It's the only house with a poetry. Is there a single piece of cloth on it? Young man, the stranger said, your father didn't hang a single piece of cloth. Look, he's covered the whole tree with pieces of white cloth. And he could hardly believe his eyes. There was the tree covered, and in the front yard, his old father dancing up and down, waving another piece of white cloth. His father ran beside the train, and when it stopped at the little station, he threw his arms around him, embraced him with tears of joy. He said, I've been waiting for you. That's what Father God is like. You see, and parents, parents are meant to be a predictable backdrop to life. A fixed point. When I first became a father of, um, of girls, uh, I bought a book. I thought I'd need some help. This book was called Seven Secrets of Effective Fathers. It was based on a huge amount of research that was done on what qualities in fathers led to children prospering and flourishing. Of these seven secrets, number three was this. Effective fathers are consistent in their attitudes and behavior. They keep their promises. Their lives are characterized by regularity and predictability. Regularity, predictability i.e., dads are boring. <laughs> so that's what I, when I read that, I thought, so in order to be a good dad, I need to get more boring <laughs> as a sacrifice for the sake of my children. I need to become more predictable in order to provide them with a fixed reference point. Consistency is part of what it means to be a parent. Here's another thing. Animals getting cuter, hopefully. Um, gathering the family. If we go back to Matthew 23, later in the chapter is one of the places, the place in Matthew's gospel where Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. This is what parents are like too. Parents gather family. That's why it's so quiet here at Christmas time. It's one of our quietest times of the year as, as a church because people go to be with their parents. Their parents lift their wings and gather the chicks around the Christmas meal table and people have gone from here to be there. That's absolutely how it should be. One of the things that I find when, um, is that my, my mother, I don't know if this is my family, yours may be a little bit different, I suppose, but my mother's always trying to get the largest possible group of extended family together. So we say, Mum, Dad, we'd like to come and catch up with you, see you. Um, we get there, and we find there's an aunt and a cousin that she's invited over as well at the same time. We just wanted time with my, my parents, but more people have appeared. And given enough notice, the whole extended family... Especially when my brother, who lives in France, comes over. That's definite. That's always an opportunity to gather everybody together. Parents have that instinct to gather people together. Like the hen wants to gather chicks under her wings. And uh, this is how community forms. Having said it, it takes parents to form family. 
it requires this gathering together of people to form community. You can run the best programs in the world. If you're a youth leader, you can put on an amazing, you can go ice skating one week, take everyone out for pizza the next week, and whatever it is, you know, take them all gaming and laser cresting and paintballing and you know, whatever it might be that they really want to. You can have an incredible program week on week on week on week. It won't build family unless there are spiritual mums and dads opening their hearts, opening their homes, opening their lives, and embracing those kids as people. It takes spiritual mums and dads reliably giving themselves. That's the first two things, giving at your own expense, committed for the long-term consistency. Those two things together offered to people give them a safe place in which to belong and to start to let the walls down and start to be honest about what's really going on in life. Um, Bev and I, over the years, have been involved in forming a number of different small groups, community groups, teams, those kinds of things. And I'm sure others of you have experienced the same thing that we have, that the way a new team or way a new group of people forms is that, first of all, you invite whoever's taking responsibility for it, invites people, would you come and join with us? We're not just inviting you into a task or to do something. We're inviting you to come and share life with us. We'll be there for you. We want to spend time doing things, not just to achieve some purpose. We want to spend time doing things with you. And people gather, but they, they gather to that invitation where there is reliable care. People start to let the walls down, and then relationship starts to form amongst the group of people who are gathered to the point where there comes a point, you know it's going well, when you can absent yourself and people still want to get together. But it takes a process before that happens. There's a, there's a parenting-type role, a spiritual mum and dad-type thing, without which you very, very rarely get family. Without mothers and fathers, we are dissipated. That's how it works. Okay, next thing, modeling the good life. Um, Parents have the opportunity not just to pass on information, but to set an example. Now, to be fair, um, having studied animal behavior, that being my academic background, this left-hand monkey is not consciously teaching the right-hand monkey what to do. Just want to it's just getting on with it, and the right-hand monkey's getting an opportunity to learn by observing. But there's... Okay, I probably didn't need to go into that. But I don't want you to think... I, I just can't bear the idea that you think that I think they're little people with hair on doing their thing. They're, they're not. They're, they are animals. They are animals, and he's not trying to do anything other than get at the nuts that he's breaking open with a stone. Nonetheless... Amongst human beings, it is possible for parents to deliberately pass on how-to type knowledge. See, there's a lot of us that would prefer to learn to say, just give me the information and I'll work it out. Is there anyone like that? Is it just me and Mary and Helen? No one else is going to put their hands up now, are they? I'm picking you out by name. Um, there's quite a lot of us that like to say, just tell me what to do and I'll work it out. But there's a better way to learn, which is to observe 
and be involved and learn by things being modelled for us. I couldn't find the, um, the source of this. But I was remembering a story I'd seen in the paper years ago. I couldn't find the source of it, but there was a story of, um, of a young teenage boy who saved his brother's life. His brother was injured. He put him in the family car and drove him to hospital. Never had a driving lesson in his life. And everyone was quite astonished. He saved his brother's life. Everyone said, well, how did you do that? And this is his answer. He said, I just did what I'd seen my father doing. And the truth is that for those of us who have children looking to us, we are teaching them. It's not a choice. They are copying. They are, they are learning from what we're doing, come what may. This means that spiritual parenting, it's more than being a mentor or a coach uh, who helps somebody to reflect on what they're doing. It's a relationship that works by spending time together, often doing quite purposeless things. Um, I was in a... I saw someone for breakfast this week who told me, they said to me, oh, you, you were saying this about how we handle our inner um, you know, struggles with sin, and I thought I should do this and that. I could not remember having said anything about it at all. I never sat down with this guy and said, right then, I've noticed in your life there's this thing we need to talk about. We'd just bumped around enough together that he'd heard me saying something, and in that... Not everything I say has this quality, but he'd heard something that I'd said that he ah, I, I see how you're responding to that situation, and there's the point of learning. Um, we can learn, we can go to seminars on grief and overcoming difficulty, and they may do us good, but there's something about watching other people handle disappointment well watching other people face grief, watching other people cope when a work colleague is constantly undermining them, or more positively, watching how other people handle well a sudden increase in income, which can be handled badly, or a sudden increase in influence, which can equally be handled badly. Seeing how people do those things, getting close enough to people to observe it, is tremendously helpful. Um, just a week ago, I was being challenged in a discipleship group that I'm part of about my level of faith to see uh, other people become Christians. I was being challenged about it because I'd said that I thought my faith was for that was in need of some refreshing. So then I got challenged about it. And I said, okay, I think I know what I need to do about this. What I need to do is over the summer, I need to read some scriptures that deal with this, and I need to read a couple of biographies that will encourage my faith. And someone in that group was wise enough to say to me, well, you can do all of that, but this isn't just about you getting hold of information and working out what to do with it. You need to spend some time with someone who's got what you need. So the next morning, I got in touch with Rich Colebrook and said, you're running a Journeys Cafe at Transform. Every year, people become Christians there. I saw what, how much John and Sally enjoyed being part of it previously. Is there any way I could get in on that and do it with you? That's how the best kind of learning is going to take place. I've learned more about prayer by praying with people 
who pray better than me than any number of seminars, sermons, and books. That's the truth of it. So parents know all of that stuff and model it. Last thing (laughs) is this. Uh, Discipline. Uh, (laughs) Parents know that discipline is good. Yeah? Without it, we would be stuffed. And it's okay for parents to exercise discipline because it comes in the context of a loving relationship where there is consistent self-giving. That makes it okay to then exercise discipline. Um, To exercise discipline as a parent uh, does mean being willing to be unpopular. Uh, I don't know how you feel about that. Some of us like everybody to like us. Um, Well, you just can't, can you? If you, want your pet, if you want everybody to like you all the time, you'll never really challenge people in the way that would do them most good. For discipline to work, it also needs to come in the context of a vision of what other people can become. And I don't mean the kind of controlling vision that says, I never made it as a doctor, you're, you're going to become one, you're doing a medical degree, you know, no choice for you, son. Not that kind of controlling vision, but helping people to, helping the people that we care for to grow, knowing that their laziness will limit their success, knowing that their pride will inhibit the formation of friendships in their life, knowing that their lust will lead to harm, gluttony to poor health, having vision for them to know God, know the Bible, be filled with the Spirit, to be fruitful. When you've got vision for people, then any kind of pruning that needs to take place uh, is beneficial, If you don't have vision for people, then any attempts to prune will just be vandalism. Having vision for why there is discipline is is essential. Parents know that in the family, especially those with small children where it's a daily, if not hourly, event. No, you can't have felt tips, etc., etc. That's one of the things in our house at the moment. Um, having drawn all over all sorts of things that she knew better. Um, I'm going to come back to this. From a few, do you remember this from a few weeks ago? Some of you around when I was preaching about discipleship from a different angle and said, look, it's like this. If you have a high level of friendship, but you don't challenge other people, then that leads to everybody being cozy. And, and there you are. Uh, if in addition to having that strong friendship, there's also a high level of challenge, that's the point at which people will really start to grow. That applies to what we receive and what we offer to other people. If we want to grow, we want to place ourselves in situations where we are well-supported and highly challenged. If we want to see other people grow, then we will commit ourselves to these kinds of friendships, relationships where we are consistently there, consistently supportive, offering strong friendship, but also be ready to offer a high level of challenge, both through the quality of what we model to other people, that's challenging, but also through being willing to name the issues and bring discipline. It should 
Um, I hope it's occurred to you that this thing of weak friendship to strong friendship, that's the first two points that I was making about spiritual parenting. It's about being there and giving ourselves. The other two uh, things that I said there about modeling and discipline is on the other axis. This thing about discipleship and parenting being the same thing expressed in slightly different words. So that it's spiritual parents who will succeed in making more disciples. Okay, so I'm coming into land here and saying, well, so what? Hopefully I've managed to communicate something of what spiritual parents are and do. And I hope what I've communicated is this is not about a set of activities. This isn't something else to squeeze into a busy life. It's more about a state of mind of whether we see ourselves as capable of relating in that way to other people. And so here's my question really from this morning. Here's my question. It's, do you see yourself as a child or a parent? In terms of the spiritual relationships that you have, do you see yourself as a child or a parent? Or more accurately, we're all children. Do you see yourself as a child or also as a parent. You may not have had experience of good parents. You may feel disqualified from anything like that because you've not had a good experience of parenting. George Muller's mother, George Muller that I mentioned at the beginning, his mother died when he was little. And when he was in his late teens, he got into debt and was put in prison. And it was five weeks before his dad bailed him out. I'm thinking that's not a great relationship. But he found something in the Bible about God, the tender father, and that was enough. That set him on the course that we still celebrate today. It helps to have good parents from whom we've learned things, but it's not necessary. And we're not disqualified for not having had them. It may be that you've tried before and it's gone wrong. You've tried to care for others and help others grow but that it's gone wrong. But you know what? That's the way of it, isn't it? No parent is perfect. I tried to be a really good parent in the week and bless my girls, and all I did was create strife. Uh, The the fruit of my attempt to be loving is that my middle daughter thinks I don't like her (laughs) as much as her sisters. So that's the stuff of parenting. If it's gone wrong in the past, join the club. And don't disqualify yourself from having another go. It's not about age either. Um, In the last week or so, Keith and I have both spent time talking to a a young woman that we've come to see is quite remarkable. She's aged about 20 and a spiritual mum to a whole chunk of teenagers in the town where she lives. And I think that makes her younger than pretty much everybody here. And she's doing a great job of being a spiritual mum. In the church and in the world, there is normally a lack of spiritual parents. That's what Paul wrote to the the church in Corinth, saying you have a myriad of uh, guardians, but not many fathers. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers, he wrote. 
Um, that is, there's lots and lots of willing people that are willing to give advice. That was the role of the guardian in that time in history, like a teacher to give information, but not many people who let you close enough that you can imitate their lives because you're on the inside with them. Um, some years ago, it's probably maybe getting on for 15 years ago now, I'm not, um, soon after Bev and I got married, I got an invitation to go to an all-expenses-paid retreat in the Cotswolds, a lovely five-star hotel, so I went. I didn't know what it was about till I got there, but I went. What it turned out to be was that CARE, which is a Christian charity that many of you will have heard of, had organized a retreat, and they'd asked for the Salt and Light family of churches to send one young leader and New Frontiers to send one and the Baptists and Assemblies of God and all these different people to send one young leader. And they were, I don't know quite well why they were all getting us together there, but Artie Kendall was there and it was a great time. That's what I remember. I was a real privilege to be there. There was one point towards the end of our time where somehow the subject of having a spiritual father came up. And what became... A, what, what happened at that point was that most of the room wept. This was people... I don't know quite what the process was for me to go from salt and light, but I understand that what the process was supposed to be was trying to pick the sort of shining lights of different, you know, whatever the different church stream or denomination was and bring them together to see what would spark off. And most of the room were weeping openly when the subject of spiritual fatherhood was raised. And the vast majority of people there said, I have longed for that. And I don't talk, let's not talk about it. I have prayed and I have longed for it. I think that what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth remains true. There are many guardians, myriad of guardians, not many spiritual fathers. I saw someone in the week who said to me, he's <laughs> asking what kind of relationship we might have, and said to me, he'd been praying for about 20 years for someone like me to enter his life. And it was, by which he, all I was doing was being caring. And offering some time and saying, let's talk about whatever the real issues are. I think there's a need for fathers and mothers <laughs> It's a crying need for fathers and mothers. This isn't meant to be a sort of guilt trip or anything like that. What I want to say to you this morning really is um, if you have a heart to be a spiritual mum or dad, you will not have to wait long before you get the opportunity to do it. And this isn't all about the church. I mean, my opportunities to connect with people tend to be more in the church. But for many of you, it will be more about what can happen in your workplace. And there's a, there's a, a school that um, some of us I know in the church here are aware of, which lost a mother last summer. It had had a mother leading the school, and the school thrived. It was replaced by someone who's not so much like that. And the school has, the whole, the whole atmosphere has changed, and the school is struggling. The same thing would be true in different workplaces. There, if the, is there anyone around you that you could take under your wing? You might not be in charge in the way that a head teacher is of a school, 
Is there anyone around you that you could just take under your wing, transform their life, and see family formed in a new way? I've just got a, um, what have we got here? Ah, we can all be, Jesus says, be perfect as my father is perfect. So it's possible. He wouldn't tell us to do something we couldn't do. I want to finish with a prayer up here and just give you a moment to reflect on this and what you make of it, really. It's a very simple prayer, as you can see. In the light of all of this stuff of what it would mean to be a spiritual mother or father, a spiritual parent, are you ready to pray this prayer? Father God, I want to be more like you. Are you ready to pray that prayer? I've put a little list there on the right-hand side of the contents that I've given to that this morning to help you reflect. And I want to say, please don't pray that prayer unless you mean it. But if you mean it, pray it with all your heart, and God will give you some people to care for.